Hey everyone, welcome back to Airwave, a student-led anesthesia podcast for medical students. My name is Winnie and I'm a second year medical student at McMaster University. Joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Raven. Thanks Winnie for the warm welcome. My name is Raven and I'm a third year medical student at McMaster University. As always, this podcast reflects our own views and not necessarily those of our institution. I'd also like to emphasize that the Airwave podcast is not for medical advice, just good old-fashioned medical education. Today, we'll be exploring the anesthetic considerations for COPD patients. We will first review the pathophysiology of COPD and then discuss their perioperative anesthetic considerations. Before we start, let's discuss some respiratory physiology. In our asthma episode, we reviewed the airway anatomy, breathing mechanics, airflow resistance, lung volumes and capacities, and compared and contrasted obstructive and restrictive lung diseases. Today, we'll discuss the important concept of ventilation, perfusion, and the VQ ratio. This can be quite an extensive discussion, so let's focus on the main ideas. The V stands for ventilation, which is the movement of air in and out of the lungs to facilitate gas exchange. The Q stands for perfusion, which is the delivery of blood to the lungs through the pulmonary circulation. Together, you get the VQ ratio. This ratio is the volume of air reaching the alveoli for a given volume of blood reaching the alveoli per minute. Ideally, these quantities are matched and the ratio is around 1. When there is an imbalance between lung ventilation and perfusion, you get a VQ mismatch. Let's consider what happens at each extreme. Imagine we have areas of the lungs that are receiving normal blood flow but no ventilation at all. This physiological phenomenon is known as a shunt. These areas have a VQ ratio of less than one. A shunt results in deoxygenated blood being dumped back into the left side of the heart where it mixes into systemic circulation causing hypoxemia. This process is called venous admixture. A VQ of zero is called a true shunt. Other values of low VQ, such as those that fall between 0 and 1, are considered shunt-like mechanisms since there is still minimal ventilation which allows some degree of oxygenation. A key difference between a true shunt and shunt-like mechanisms is that a true shunt cannot be improved with supplemental oxygen, whereas shunt-like mechanisms can. The primary compensatory mechanism of a VQ mismatch in the setting of a shunt is hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. We will cover this later on in the episode when we discuss the consequences of COPD in more detail. On the other hand, imagine areas of the lung that are receiving normal ventilation but no perfusion. This produces a VQ ratio that approximates infinity. This type of VQ mismatch is called dead space. Remember, dead space is the volume of ventilated air that does not participate in gas exchange. In our normal respiratory tract, there are regions that are considered anatomical dead space, such as our nose, trachea, and bronchi. In a healthy adult, the total dead space should consist primarily of the anatomical dead space. However, in cases of high VQ mismatch, the total dead space also consists of the alveolar dead space, which are the regions in the lungs that are ventilated but inadequately perfused. Great review of VQ mismatch. With that being said, let's review COPD, also known as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. The Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, GOLD, defines COPD as heterogeneous lung condition that is characterized by chronic respiratory symptoms, i.e. cough, sputum, and dyspnea, due to abnormalities of the airways and or alveoli that cause persistent, often progressive, airflow obstruction. 
COPD commonly results from frequent insults to the lungs due to harmful toxins like cigarette smoke. Smoking is a leading risk factor. Another environmental risk factor is air pollution. COPD can also rarely be associated with a genetic basis, such as mutations in the Serpina-1 gene, which leads to an alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Earlier, we stated that COPD is associated with abnormalities in the airways and or alveoli. Let's explore this further. In the airways, frequent insults from toxins, like cigarette smoke, can cause excessive mucus production, chronic inflammation, impaired mucus clearance, and narrowing of the airways. Patients may present with a productive cough and dyspnea. In the absence of an alternative diagnosis, patients with a productive cough for at least three months each year for at least two consecutive years are said to have chronic bronchitis. In the alveoli, there may be destruction of lung tissue, secondary to the inactivation of protease inhibitors. This leads to a loss in elastic recoil of the lungs and the loss of the septa, which is the wall in between individual alveoli. The loss of septa causes multiple smaller alveoli to morph into a single, larger alveoli, which reduces the available surface area for gas exchange. These pathological changes are associated with emphysema, which is the abnormal enlargement of alveoli distal to obstructed terminal airways. Although this distinction between chronic bronchitis and emphysema can be made, COPD patients are not simply grouped into one category or the other. It's more of a spectrum where these processes are not mutually exclusive. Good point. Let's consider some of the main consequences of all this pathology. First, there is airflow obstruction. Pathologic changes in the small airways and the parenchymal destruction diminish the ability of the airways to remain open during expiration. Recall from our asthma episode that increased airflow resistance and impaired expiration are key characteristics of obstructive lung diseases. Second, the loss of elastic recoil and the loss of septa contribute to gas trapping and hyperinflation. As a quick refresher, elastic recoil in the lungs refers to its intrinsic ability to deflate following inflation. The loss of elastic recoil and the abnormal enlargement of alveoli contribute to gas retention in the lungs with each breath. This hyperinflation is also described as autopeep, which is short for auto-positive and expiratory pressure. The buildup of positive pressure is caused by the progressive accumulation of air due to incomplete expiration prior to the initiation of the next breath. Autopeep can also occur when expiration is limited by airway obstruction, such as in COPD patients. Third, the structural abnormalities in the airways, alveoli, and pulmonary circulation of COPD can alter their normal VQ distributions. VQ mismatch is one of the main contributors to gas exchange abnormalities, which result in varying degrees of arterial hypoxia, with or without hypercapnia. Lastly, a notable consequence of COPD is pulmonary hypertension. As COPD advances, pulmonary hypertension can develop secondary to hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. Hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction sounds quite confusing. Let's break it down. Essentially, in areas of low VQ mismatch, pulmonary vessels will vasoconstrict and redirect their blood flow to other regions which are adequately ventilated. The goal is to improve overall oxygenation. However, over time, hypoxic vasoconstriction can lead to pulmonary circulation remodeling and hypertension. Ultimately, this leads to increased right ventricle afterload which can lead to right-sided heart failure. Right-sided heart failure due to a pulmonary origin is called core pulmonale. 
Great explanation. Now that we're familiar with the pathology and physiologic consequences of COPD, let's translate these findings into clinical manifestations. Common findings include a chronic cough with or without sputum production, dyspnea, fatigue, limited activity tolerance, a prolonged expiratory phase, and wheezing on auscultation. During COPD exacerbations, there may be increased gas trapping and hyperinflation with reduced expiratory flow, increased dyspnea, increased work of breathing, and worsening hypoxemia with or without hypercapnia, aka respiratory failure. You may be wondering, how is COPD diagnosed? Is it through a combination of these clinical features? Not entirely. Although clinical features are suggestive and supportive of a diagnosis, the primary diagnostic tool is spirometry. For a COPD diagnosis, a post-bronchodilator FEV1 over FEC less than 0.7 is required. In our previous episode, we reviewed spirometry and explained the FEV1 FEC ratio. Recall that an FEV1 over FVC less than 0.7 is characteristic of obstructive lung diseases, like asthma and COPD. In COPD, it is not just the FEV1 over FVC ratio less than 0.7 that's important to establish, but specifically a post-bronchodilator FEV1 over FVC ratio less than 0.7. That's very important to highlight. A negative response, FEV1 less than 12%, after bronchodilator administration is more common in COPD patients than in asthma patients, since their bronchoconstriction is considerably less reversible. However, this isn't the only factor that should be considered when differentiating between the two pathologies. Asthma is an important differential diagnosis to consider, since there's overlap in their clinical features. Features that favor COPD include, but are not limited to, older age, persistence of cough slash sputum slash dyspnea rather than short-term presentations, progressive deterioration in symptoms over years, and that persist rather than just a variable airflow limitation. If you're interested in learning a bit more about asthma, feel free to give our previous episode a listen. Bringing it back to COPD, did you know that the severity of airway obstruction can actually be classified based on the patient's post-bronchodilator FEV1? According to the 2023 Gold Guidelines, airflow obstruction can be classified into four classes. Gold 1 class, considered mild, is where FEV1 is greater than or equal to 80% of predicted. Gold 2, which is moderate, is where the FEV1 is less than 80, but greater than or equal to 50% of the predicted. Gold 3, which is considered severe, is where the FEV1 is less than 50%, but greater or equal to 30% of predicted. And gold 4, which is considered very severe, is where the FEV1 is less than 30% of the predicted. I didn't know that. Thanks for sharing, Winnie. Let's wrap up our discussion on COPD by reviewing treatment modalities. Generally, COPD management can include non-pharmacological and pharmacological options. Non-pharmacological interventions can include lifestyle modifications and patient education surrounding smoking cessation and improving physical activity. Pharmacological interventions primarily include the use of bronchodilators, like long-acting beta agonists, LABAs, or long-acting muscarinic antagonists, LAMAs, and inhaled corticosteroids. Rescue medications, like short-acting bronchodilators, like Ventolin, can be used for immediate relief. With what we know now, let's jump into anesthetic considerations for COPD. We begin at the pre-op evaluation. 
Heads up, this part is really important. The preoperative assessment can screen for the risk of complications relevant to COPD. Patients with COPD are at elevated risk for bronchospasm, mucus plugging, hyperinflation, and gas tra trapping, bullous disease, pneumothorax, chronic hypoxia, hypercapnia, and perioperative respiratory failure. On history, it's important to understand the severity of the patient's condition. Some key considerations include the patient's exercise tolerance, particularly with hills and stairs, frequency of exacerbation and hospital admissions, previous intubations, and ICU admissions. It's also important to screen and assess for other existing comorbidities, such as congestive heart failure, pulmonary hypertension, cardiovascular disease like CAD arrhythmias, and obstructive sleep apnea, which may contribute to an increased risk of pulmonary complications. Don't forget, a smoking history is vital. Smoking is an independent risk factor for perioperative pulmonary complications. This is also a great opportunity for some counseling, as physician-led smoking cessation counseling is one of the most successful ways for patients to stop smoking. Great point! Some last considerations in the history and physical exam include assessing for signs and symptoms of an active respiratory infection, sputum production, core pulmonale, and respiratory distress. During the pre-op evaluation, we have the chance to implement interventions to optimize patients for surgery. One of the most important is smoking cessation. Research has shown that cessation six weeks or more prior to surgery may decrease the risk of pulmonary complications. Another component of patient optimization is medication management. Patients are recommended to continue taking their usual medications, such as LABAs, LAMAs, and inhaled glucocorticoids, up to and including the day of surgery. One exception to this is theophylline, which should be discontinued the evening prior. Optimization can also involve treating any active infections or exacerbations with bronchodilators and antibiotics. Lastly, investigations like chest x-ray, echo, arterial blood gases, and spirometry may be suitable for patients that may benefit from further preoperative optimization. Recall that earlier we mentioned how spirometry results, in particular the post-bronchodilator FEV1, can actually be used to inform and stratify COPD severity. An echo can give us an idea of ventricular function, ABGs can tell us the baseline pH, CO2, and O2, and spirometry can tell us the severity of airway obstruction. Great point. That concludes our overview of the preoperative evaluation. Let's shift our focus to the anesthetic considerations on the day of surgery. Before the patient is brought into the operating room, patients may be administered pre-medications. For instance, Ventolin, a rapid-acting bronchodilator, which may be administered 30 minutes before airway manipulation to minimize the risk of bronchospasm. Before we continue on to the intraoperative considerations, let's take a step back and discuss anesthetic technique options in a COPD patient. To preface, the choice of anesthetic technique is variable and is guided by the requirements of the procedure, surgeon, and patient. To simplify for us, let's put aside those other factors for now and only consider just how the patient's COPD itself may influence anesthetic technique choice. For COPD patients, techniques that avoid airway manipulation are generally preferred since maneuvers like endotracheal intubation are highly potent triggers for bronchoconstriction. Good point. General anesthesia may be associated with an increased risk of bronchospasm during endotracheal intubation or extubation. 
Other options for airway management include using a supraglottic airway, such as an LMA, which may have less risk of bronchospasm. If possible, regional anesthesia is preferred, since airway manipulation can be avoided. The perioperative advantages of neuraxial techniques in COPD patients have been well suggested in research. Prospective cohort studies have reported significantly lower incidences of respiratory complications in patients receiving neuraxial anesthesia in comparison to patients receiving general anesthesia. As we progress into the intraoperative course, there are some key considerations to keep in mind for COPD patients. First, COPD patients may have increased sensitivity to the respiratory depressant effects of sedatives and analgesics like opioids. Consequences of uncontrolled respiratory depression can include hypoventilation, hypercapnia, and hypoxemia. In monitored anesthetic care, you can minimize this risk by administering anesthetic agents in small incremental doses while continually monitoring the patient's oxygen saturation and end tidal CO2. Another approach is to implement the use of multimodal analgesia. Multimodal analgesia is the use of more than one class of pain medications that can target different pain receptors. The aim is to improve pain management while reducing individual class-related adverse effects, like respiratory depression. Second, with COPD patients, it's important to utilize lung protective ventilation strategies. Recall that these patients have irreversible airway narrowing and subsequent airflow obstruction, which manifests as impaired expiration. Some ventilation goals are to ensure adequate expiration, minimize air trapping, and prevent dynamic hyperinflation. Lung protective ventilation involves reducing the tidal volume, adjusting the inspiratory to expiratory ratio to promote a longer expiratory time, and using an appropriate level of PEEP, which is positive end expiratory pressure. It's important to watch for complete expiration on the ventilator monitor to titrate this. Throughout the intraoperative course with mechanical ventilation, it's important to monitor for dynamic hyperinflation, which is also known as breath stacking. In a patient with airway obstruction, exhalation may not be complete by the time the next breath is taken, leading to increasing amounts of air trapped at end exhalation. You can imagine that the lungs become very inflated over time, and with each subsequent breath, the amount of air left over in the lungs, i.e. the FRC, also increases. This can raise intrathoracic pressure and decrease venous return to the heart. On that note, let's brainstorm some signs of breath stocking. These include increasing peak airway pressure, decreasing exhaled volume, and hypotension. Management of dynamic hyperinflation may involve administering a bronchodilator, reducing minute ventilation, and increasing expiratory time. In addition, a quick and effective way to treat dynamic hyperinflation involves disconnecting the ventilator circuit to temporarily stop ventilation and allow full recoil of the chest wall, therefore a full expiration. Great. Let's not forget that bronchospasm is another significant intraoperative risk that you may come across in this patient population. Feel free to review our episode on asthma, where we discuss intraoperative management of bronchospasm. As the operation concludes, let's progress to emergence. During emergence, bronchospasm may occur due to the lightening of the anesthetic and removal of the endotracheal tube. A bronchodilator may be administered prophylactically before emergence, if necessary. Due to the potentially increased sensitivity to anesthetic agents, it's particularly important to ensure adequate reversal of neuromuscular blockade agents and elimination of sedatives. Residual paralytics and sedation may lead to pulmonary complications in the immediate postoperative period, including hypoventilation, depressed cough reflex, 
retention of secretions, atelectasis, and respiratory failure, which may prolong the need for mechanical ventilation. Speaking of post-operative, in the post-operative period, bronchodilator therapy and inhaled glucocorticoids should be resumed if necessary. To manage pulmonary complications, non-invasive ventilation should be readily available to avoid the need for re-intubation. Let's highlight some key points to wrap this up. First, we defined COPD based on the gold guidelines and reviewed the severity based on spirometry and clinical features. Diagnosis of COPD involves the presence of incomplete reversibility with a bronchodilator. On spirometry, this is indicated by an FEV1 over FVC ratio less than 0.7 after bronchodilator administration. Management is targeted at lifestyle modification, such as smoking cessation, and the use of bronchodilators and steroids. Next, we discussed key perioperative anesthetic considerations. Through the preoperative evaluation, it is important to determine the severity of the condition, optimize disease control, educate patients on the use of medications and smoking cessation, and assess the need for further medication supplementation or investigations. Premedication with a rapid-acting bronchodilator also may be helpful to minimize the risk of bronchoconstrictive events. Intraoperatively and postoperatively, there are some key points to remember. One, neuraxial or regional anesthetic techniques are preferred over GA if possible to minimize airway instrumentation. Second, recognize that COPD patients may have increased sensitivity to respiratory depressant effects of anesthetic agents. Third, COPD patients may be predisposed to various pulmonary complications. Fourth, utilize lung protective ventilation strategies. And lastly, postoperatively, the patient may resume their baseline COPD regimen and it is important to monitor for pulmonary complications. And that concludes this podcast episode. We hope that you'll be able to apply what you learned today in your clinical rotations. We would like to thank our content editors, Dr. Peru Panchal and Dr. Andrew Soret, and a big thanks to Dr. Cordovani and Dr. Whippy for their support. Also, make sure to check out our website, tweet at us on our Twitter page at Airwave Podcast, and follow us on Instagram at Airwave Podcast for any questions or suggestions. And until next time, keep working hard, stay healthy, stay safe, and take some nice deep breaths and count back from 10.